Amen. Praise the Lord. I want to invite you to turn your Bibles this evening to Matthew chapter 23. We want to start on a long-term project this evening. We're going to start going through the book of Hebrews. And there's 13 chapters and the way we normally, the pace that we normally take when we go through verse by verse is we get about a half a chapter done a week. So that's about a six-month project. So um, we'll see how it goes. But uh, tonight I want to talk to you, kind of introduce the book of Hebrews to you, and, and uh, um, we never will get to the book, because I want to talk to you about the what, the how, and the, the what, the why, and the who of the book of Hebrews. Why it's, uh, why it's written to us, what the purpose is, talk some about maybe who wrote it, and uh, what God intends for us to, to see out of this. I want you to look in uh, Matthew chapter 23. Jesus is, uh, is in the temple, and he speaks some things to the disciples relative to the Jews in general. And we want to start with this, uh, Matthew chapter 23 and verse 37. Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Now, I want you to notice that verse of Scripture. Your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, you shall not see me henceforth till you shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Now, folks, whether you realize that or not, that's talking about when Jesus comes back, not the rapture, not the second coming of Jesus when he comes for the church, but that's the second advent when he comes after the tribulation period. So he says, you're not going to see me again until you say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, it's going to take the tribulation for you to realize, I am who I said I was. Then he goes further, it goes further in chapter 24. Notice it says, and Jesus went out and departed. Notice how the Bible says both. He went out and departed. This is the last time that Jesus goes to the temple. Last time he was there. And this is what he proclaimed over Jerusalem. Now, it's interesting. Jerusalem is interesting to, to us because uh, it's just a regular city. I mean, it's, uh, it's not something that we can trace back to a founding where God sent somebody like Abraham or, or even Adam or, or somebody uh, that was uh, greatly used or greatly uh, had a great significant part or place in the, in the lineage of God or the lineage of Jesus and, and, and said, found this city, this is my favorite place. The city first appears in Genesis chapter 14, and it's called Salem. It means peace. It means place of peace. And it's, uh, the story is where it tells us about Melchizedek. And it talks about how Melchizedek, and we'll, we'll see this further as we go in the, the book of Hebrews. Uh, the, uh, the, the book of Hebrews, uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews refers to Melchizedek and, and uh, its significance, his significance as the type of Jesus. But it says of Melchizedek that he was a man without origin. He didn't have a, a father or a mother. Now, that doesn't mean he didn't have one. It means there was no record of him having one so that he met the, the, the type or the, uh, the illustration of Jesus. Whether he did or not, we don't know. Nobody really knows for sure who Melchizedek was. He could have been a, a, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. He could have been just a regular guy that we didn't know where he came from. But the fact is, when it comes to the city of Jerusalem, what becomes the city of Jerusalem, we don't know anything special about it. Yet God favored it. It became the city of David, and it was a special place in God's plan, both in the past and in the future. There's a new Jerusalem that comes down. 
After the tribulation period, after the millennium, after God reestablishes His kingdom here on the earth, that says that He creates, recreates the heavens and the earth and a new Jerusalem comes down. Why Jerusalem? What does Jerusalem have to do with anything? What's the significance of Jerusalem? Now, people can tell you, if people have a love for the city, then they can tell you, well, it's because it's the place of God. But why? There's nothing about it that makes it the place of God. That's like saying Abraham was a Jew. Well, he wasn't when God found him. I, I oftentimes make the joke, God didn't look down from heaven and look to see the guy that's wearing the little beanie cap on his head and say, oh, there he is. Abraham was just as much a Gentile as everybody else was. There was no such thing as a Jew. Why did God pick Abraham? In the same way, God picked Jerusalem. He just selected it. Now, Jerusalem, if you take the words apart, Jerusalem means dual peace. And it has uh, several different uh, applications and several different meanings. It can mean free-flowing peace. It can mean the two hills of peace. There are two hills in Jerusalem that the city is based on. Uh, nobody really can nail down here's exactly what it means and why it means that, and here's where it started. The fact is, when God speaks of Jerusalem, he's using that figuratively as a symbol for all of the people that, that were descendants of Abraham. And he says, because you rejected me, Jesus said, because you rejected me, your house is left unto you desolate. Now, what house is he talking about? Is he saying your city is going to be destroyed? Well, the city was rebuilt. It was destroyed. It was destroyed in 70 A.D., some 37 years after Jesus said these things. But the city was rebuilt. It's, it's rebuilt now, and I mean, it exists today. So what does he mean when he says your house is going to be left unto you desolate? Is he saying the temple is going to be gone and, and that's all there is to it? No. There's more to it than that. He's saying everything that the Jewish people were built on is going to be desolate. That means he's going to leave it. That's why chapter 24, verse 1 says he went out and departed. That means he left the temple and that was it for God's blessing and God's hand on the temple from that day forward. You remember when Jesus was crucified. It tells us about how the, the darkness covered the face of the earth. There was a three-hour period of darkness. And there was an earthquake when Jesus gave up the spirit, his spirit and allowed his spirit to, uh, uh, to go to hell and, and pay the price and the penalty for sin. He said, Father, into your, hands I, into your hands I commend my spirit. And then it says there was a great earthquake. When he died, he gave up the ghost, as the King James refers to it. It says that, uh, uh, that there was a great earthquake and, and the, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. Now, this, this veil was that which uh, separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Now, the holy place was a place where the priests... Uh, all the priests could go into and perform the service of God, but the Holy of Holies was a place that only the high priest could go into, and he could only go in there once a year. And he had to go under great precautions. The, the, there's great detail given to us about how he had to wash and purify himself and prepare and, and have his garments just right and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and this veil that separated those two, uh, those two places separated the presence of God, the Shekinah glory in the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. And on the day of uh, atonement, when the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, they tied a rope around his leg so that just in case he didn't do the proper ritual washings and all the other stuff he was supposed to do just in the right way and he fell dead in there, nobody would have to die to go try to get him out. They'd just start dragging on that rope. Now, we don't have any record in history that that ever happened, but I just can't imagine being number two guy in line. 
Okay, you're the assistant high priest today, just in case something goes wrong. Who wants to follow that, you know? But this veil, the Bible tells us, uh, or the historical records tell us, the Bible doesn't say anything about it, but the historical records tell us about this veil that was torn at the uh, time of the earthquake when Jesus died. And it says it was torn from top to bottom like an angel would rip it in two. Not from bottom to top, like some man might be able to if he was strong enough, but this thing was a foot thick. It was 30 feet high, it was 20 feet wide, and it was one foot thick. I mean, it was woven again and again and again. It was, it was definitely a blackout curtain. It was something that was intended to separate those two places in the temple. But when Jesus died, that veil was rent, torn from top to bottom, and the presence of God was never again seen in the temple. So he says that your house is going to be left unto you desolate, he's talking about the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. He's saying the old covenant that you've lived by, the blessings and the inheritance and all the things that you think you've trusted in, that you've put your trust in thinking that puts you in right stand with God by the Ten Commandments and the rituals and the feasts and all those other things, that's going to be desolate. Of course, they didn't understand that. Even Jesus' disciples didn't understand it. So it said, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And then that's when Jesus said, There's coming a time where there not, shall not be left one stone upon another and, and, all, and that shall not be thrown down. He speaks of the destruction of the temple as symbolic of the old covenant passing away. Now, folks, everything about, and here again, we're, we're trying to set the stage for why the book of Hebrews was written. Because primarily the church today is a Gentile church. And a lot of people will say, well, I don't really care about the book of Hebrews because I'm not a Jew and it's written to the Jews, and so who cares? Well, folks, I don't know about you, but I'm, not a Jew, I'm, not a, I'm neither a Jew, nor am I a Corinthian, nor am I a Roman, nor am I a Galatian or an Ephesian. I'm not Timothy. I'm not Titus. So what does belong to us? No, the Bible says Jesus spoke to his disciples and he says, I say to you and I say to all. In other words, everything that's given to us in the New Testament belongs to everybody. So there are things that we need to get from the book of Hebrews so that we can understand how to overcome the things that hold us back just like things that we're holding them back. Now turn with me over to the book of Acts. Even though Jesus said Jerusalem is going to be left desolate and then he dies on the cross, the church starts in Jerusalem. That's where everybody is when Jesus is raised from the dead, right? Why didn't Jesus draw them outside of the city? Why didn't he appear to them and say, or at least tell them up front, you know, wait somewhere else for me. I don't want to go back to Jerusalem because they're done. Now, when he says Jerusalem is going to be left desolate, he's talking about the old covenant. Jerusalem is still the plan of God. Jerusalem is still the favored city of God. If they accept and refer to Jesus as their Savior rather than their old covenant ways. So Jesus is raised from the dead. Jesus appears to the disciples and he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Ghost. A change takes place in them. John chapter 20 tells us that they, they now are no longer in, in behind closed doors and, and huddling up trying to stay out of the Jews' way and afraid that the, the Pharisees are going to come kill them. The Sanhedrin is going to come kill them just like they killed Jesus. Now they're openly in the temple. They're waiting. Just like Jesus said, he told them to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Ghost is poured out. So there's a change taking place on the inside of them. They're born again. That's the only thing that would make that kind of change. And then they're waiting in Jerusalem until the Holy Ghost is poured out. And they're in the temple. The upper room is part of the temple. And that's where the Holy Ghost is poured out and everybody hears it. Well, then how is he through with Jerusalem? It tells us in Acts chapter 2 that Peter begins to preach. 
And he says, Peter in his preaching, in his sermon, said that the people, it tells us that, the, uh, well, maybe I should read this so that you see, see it for yourself. In Acts chapter 2, um, notice in verse 5. After they began to speak with other tongues, it says, And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews. Everybody say Jews. They're there for the feast. They've come from all over the world for the feast, to celebrate the feast, to keep the law of Moses, to keep the feasts that were commanded as a part of the Old Covenant. And it says, There were at Jerusalem, dwelling at Jerusalem, Jews, devout men. That means keepers of the law. That means orthodox there was no orthodox and unorthodox Jews in, in Jesus' day. There were, there were certainly secular Jews and, and people that didn't follow just like today. But when it says devout men, that would be the equivalent of what we know of as the orthodox Jews. Now, I don't know if they had the little ringlets in their hair and all that kind of stuff that you see today in the orthodox Jews or not. But they're the, the devout Jews, the ones that are the law keepers. So they were dwelling at Jerusalem, devout men, Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. And it says that uh, they were confounded, they didn't understand, or, or they didn't understand what was going on because they heard them speaking, they heard the disciples, the 120, speaking different languages. Now Peter in his preaching, and notice it wasn't them speaking with tongues that got everybody saved. Uh, you'll hear some nutcase people that go out and say, well I'm going to go witnessing, but I don't know what to say, so when people answer the door I'm just going to speak in tongues. That's just proof that everybody's not supposed to witness as far as I'm concerned. You don't have enough wisdom to know that's not what to do. Don't witness. But anyway, it says that they heard them speak the wonderful works of God in their own languages. And so everybody was, was amazed by this. By the way, it doesn't say that they spoke in, in those languages. It said they heard them in those languages. So there was a miracle that took place, whether the miracle was in what the, the apostles, the 120, said or whether it was what the, the people of the city heard. We don't know. Nevertheless, Peter in his preaching said that they had crucified Jesus. He didn't say the Romans did it. And nobody spoke up, nobody answered back and said, Whoa, wait, whoa, whoa, we didn't have anything to do with that. The Romans did all that. Now Jesus accused them of crucifying, or I'm sorry, Peter accused them, the people, the devout Jews of crucifying Jesus because, folks, religion is what put Jesus on the cross. The Jewish religion is what put Jesus on the cross. Now, people get upset with that and they say, well, you're, you Christians are against the Jews because you say we crucified Jesus. No, religion crucified, the, the, the religion crucified Jesus. The Jewish religion crucified Jesus. 3,000 people get saved that day from Peter's preaching. Man, that had to be something, didn't it? 3,000 people. Now, who were those 3,000 people that got saved? They weren't Gentiles. There weren't any Gentiles in the city. The city's covered up with Jews from every country and every town and every area and every region. They've come to the temple once a year to keep the feast. They're supposed to. They're doing what they're supposed to do according to the law of Moses. So these 3,000 people that get saved are all Jews, or primarily Jews. Maybe some Jew, uh, Gentile proselytes, but by and large they're Jews. Then it tells us in Acts chapter 3 about the man that's healed at the beautiful gate of the temple. It tells us as a result of that... That 5,000 people are saved. Now, who are these 5,000 people now that get saved? Primarily Jews. We don't know exactly the timing. We don't know if they're still there for the Feast of Pentecost or not. But the people that are there in Jerusalem primarily are Jews. So now you've got 8,000 people. You started with 120. And through the end of Acts chapter 3, you've got 8,120 people 
in the church at Jerusalem, and the vast majority, maybe 99% of them are Jews. What are these Jews going to think about their newfound Christianity? Where do they start? Well, they don't know anything except Jesus. They don't know the law has been done away with. Peter hardly even knows that. You talk about a baby church. Then Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, they're called on the carpet. After these 5,000 people get saved, the man at the beautiful gate is, is, uh, is healed. The Sanhedrin, the same group that crucified Jesus, now calls Peter and John in before them and questions them about how did you perform this healing miracle? What power did you use to do this? They always, the Sanhedrin is after the same thing with them now that they were after with Jesus when he was there before. They want to know, how are you doing this? For one of two reasons. Either, number one, so that we can incorporate it into ourselves and our group and take credit for it. Or, if we can't utilize it ourselves, stop anybody else from doing it. And folks, that's always what religion will do. It'll either try to incorporate the things of God or stop them. Peter and John... Filled with the spirit of boldness. They've already been filled with the Holy Ghost. Now they're filled with the spirit of boldness to speak up. This is the same group in John chapter 20 that they were hiding from. Now they're speaking out to them face to face. Something had to have happened to these guys, folks. You don't make that change without supernatural occurrence taking place. So now they're speaking to him openly and said, You're the ones that crucified Jesus. And nobody answers a word. They don't step up and say, No, what are you talking about? We didn't do that. They didn't defend themselves. They didn't say, well, we were just keeping the law. They didn't say, well, that's what God wanted us to do. They didn't say anything. Peter accused them face to face of killing Jesus, and nobody said a word. Finally, they beat them, threatened them not to preach or teach anymore in the name of Jesus, and let them go. They go back to their own company in Acts chapter 4, and they pray for a greater spirit of boldness upon them to speak the word. We know what the Sanhedrin told us. We know what the Jewish religious people told us. We know what the leaders told us, leaders of the Jews told us. But Lord, we know what you told us too. Anytime the laws of man violate the laws of God, you got to make a choice. They made theirs. We're going to follow you, Lord. So give us greater boldness so that we can do this. And they were filled with boldness. And the church began to grow. Now you got 8,120 people at least. Then the Bible says that believers were added daily such as should be saved. So we don't know how many that is. But you can see the church is growing. The church is exploding in just a very short period of time. Who's taking care of all these people? They've got a huge logistical problem. Imagine if 5,000 people got saved this Sunday morning. What are we going to do with them? we got an instant building problem. That's what happened to Jerusalem, folks. You need to realize that. This is what they're dealing with. Don't look at this as some kind of legend or fairy tale. This is what they're dealing with. They've got all kinds of problems. So what does the Bible tell us takes place? It says in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira tried to take a position of authority that didn't belong to them. They lied to the Holy Ghost about having sold a piece of property and given the, the proceeds to the church and fall dead in church. And the Bible says that great fear came on everybody, number one, and nobody else tried to do what they did. No surprise there. But then secondly, it says the church continued to grow and had greater power. Now, folks, I've got to tell you something. Peter said, talking to Ananias and Sapphira, that because they lied to the Holy Ghost, they fell dead in church. That was the reason that, that uh, the life went out of them, they fell dead in church. If lying to the Holy Ghost was an automatic die in church, 
we'd have to have churches attached to funeral homes. Because you can't tell me that's not a common occurrence. You can't tell me that people don't come to church every week and lie to the Holy Ghost about what they're going to do or what they did do or what they want to do or what they should do or something. What was the point? The point was they were trying to take a position of leadership that God hadn't ordained for them. If the wrong people had gotten in leadership when the church was in that infancy stage, can you imagine the mess it would have created? What happens then? It tells us that uh, the power of God was even greater in demonstration. It tells us in Acts chapter 5 about how the shadow of Peter started healing people on the streets. Now, why would it be necessary for Peter's shadow to heal people? It says they came from every country. They came from every region. People are coming long distances. They're traveling long distances at, at whatever expense there was or whatever difficulty it was for the sick to travel so that they could lay them in the streets so that Peter could just walk by them in the shadow get, and heal these people. Why would it be necessary for the shadow of somebody to heal them unless there's too many people to stop and lay hands on? I mean, it's pretty rude of Peter to say, I'm not going to touch you, but my shadow will get you. There had to be a reason for it, folks. Had to be a reason. Why? Because the church is exploding. It becomes fashionable for people to get saved. Turn to chapter 6. Let me show you something about chapter 6. Chapter 6 tells us about how that uh, the problem arose uh, with the, the widows being ministered to. The Gentiles, and there were Gentiles in the church, obviously. And the Gentile widows were being neglected by the Jews. In other words, there's already a favoritism system set up. People that are doing the distribution are favoring the Jews over the Gentiles. There's the same prejudices. Some people want to say, bless their hearts. They want to say, I just want to go back to the New Testament church. You mean the same New Testament prejudice they had? You mean the same New Testament legalism they had? You mean the same New Testament immaturity they had? You mean the same New Testament lack of leadership they had in the beginning? Folks, people are people. If you were in the early church, you'd have the same attitudes that you have now. The reality is you probably know a lot more now than if you had been back then. But people get these wrong ideas. They get pie-in-the-sky ideas about it. So what, is, what is, happens? The Holy Ghost gives Peter an idea about how to handle things. That's when they appoint deacons to handle relationships Natural relationship issues between people. Those are the very things some people will stop coming to church over. Well, I'm just not going to come to church anymore because people aren't friendly to me. Well, if the Grecian widows had done that, they would have been out of church. Well, I'm just not going anymore because of all the hypocrites. What do you think Ananias and Sapphira were? Folks, people are people. They're going to be the same no matter when you live. But in Acts chapter 6, notice it says, after the Holy Ghost gives Peter the idea about appointing deacons and selecting the, the seven, it says that the church began to grow. And it says, uh, verse, uh, verse 6. Is that what I want? Yeah, verse 6. It, uh, I'm sorry, verse 7. Acts chapter 6, verse 7, it says, And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. Now, how many is greatly? We know we've got over 80, what could we estimate, maybe 8,500 people at the, at, in the church at this point in time. Now it says they, number, they multiply greatly. How many is that? 
that mean they add another thousand? that mean they add another 2,000? I don't know. But you're talking about a big crowd of people. Most of them Jews. Most of them Jews that have been trained the same thing all their lives, and that is keep the law of Moses. Folks, I want you to understand something. The fact that God has been able to do anything with the church, with what it's, he started with, is a miracle. We look at what we don't have, and we look back at the book of Acts, and we say, yeah, but look at the power they had. Look at the mess they had. You know who I feel sorry for? James, who is the pastor of this people. Now, Peter started off being the pastor, but James winds up taking things over. I'll show you why. I feel sorry for him. Verse 7 again, And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And, get this phrase, And a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Do you see that phrase? A great number of the priests got saved. Now, what are the priests used to? They're used to ministering according to the law of Moses. What are they going to do in the church? What would they expect their role to be? Folks, you've got to understand, nobody's getting saved. The priest, no, nobody in Jerusalem, nobody's getting saved thinking, we make Jesus the Lord of our lives, and now forget the law of Moses. Nobody thinks that. Not even Peter. Everybody thinks we keep rocking along the same way that we are, but we accept Jesus because, man, when you use his name, power happens. So, okay, we'll accept Jesus. Their hearts changed. Their, their spirits are made new. But you know just as well as I do, when you got saved, everything didn't get right in your head. You're, you're, you didn't wake up the next morning and say, Oh, the blinders are off. I can see all the wrong thinking that I've had all my life. No, you're still trying to correct some of your thinking 20 years later. Just like the rest of us. Do you see the point I'm trying to make? Church begins to grow. Continues to grow. It begins to spread out. Acts chapter 8 tells us about the word of God going to Samaria. Philip goes down to Samaria and preaches the word. The Jewish leaders, or I'm sorry, not the Jewish leaders, the church leaders, which by and large are Jews, they now send Peter and John to Samaria to minister the Holy Ghost to them. Samaria is pretty close. That's not too much of a problem. But by the time you get to Acts chapter 10, where the vision takes place, where Peter has the vision and he goes to Caesarea... Where Cornelius' house is, man, he gets called on the carpet over that. Why? Because the Jewish leaders in the church in Jerusalem are saying, what are you doing taking our Christianity to the Gentiles? Cornelius was a Roman. Samarians, they were half-breed Jews. They were related to the Jews, so that wasn't so much of a problem. But man, in Acts chapter 10, when the, when the gospel begins to spread to the Romans, the Jewish leaders, the Jewish part of the church, which is 90% of it, in Jerusalem, is saying, Paul or Peter, what are you doing? You don't go to the Gentiles. Peter said, well, the guy had a, Cornelius had a vision to send for me. I had a vision to go. I got down there. I'm minding my own business. I wasn't really doing anything out of line. I was minding my own business. Started telling them about Jesus and the Holy Ghost fell on everybody. What was I supposed to do? It's not my fault. I just told them about Jesus and the Holy Ghost came on them. They began to speak with other tongues. And others, Jews that were Christians that went down with Paul or went down with Peter to Cornelius' house, they said, yeah, that's the way it happened. Nobody really did anything. The Holy Ghost fell. We didn't, we didn't have an altar call. We wouldn't dare have done that. 
The Holy Ghost just fell on everybody. By that time, the Jewish leaders and the leaders, uh, whoever the elders are, and, and let me ask you this. If you were involved in the church at Jerusalem when it first began, let's say in the first six chapters of Acts, we don't know how long a period that is, but let's say it's a couple of years. We know by the time that Acts chapter 10 comes along, that's 10 years after Jesus has been raised from the dead. But we don't know where Acts chapter 6 is. Let's say, let's say five or six years just to, just to be safe. In those first five or six years, when there really aren't any ministry gifts except the apostles, who do you put in charge of things? That was the whole problem in Acts chapter 5. I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 6, where Peter came up with the deacons. Deacons are doing a great job, but they're handling natural affairs. They're handling the, the distribution of stuff. They're the ushers. They're, just, they're not taking care of spiritual things. They were spiritually qualified. But they were taking care of spiritual things. They were taking care of natural things. So if you don't have any spiritual ministry gifts that have been raised up yet, who do you pick? Well, you're going to choose elders like Paul did in the Gentile churches or the Gentile cities. You're going to choose older people that have some life experience. Who are some of those older people going to be? A lot of them are going to be people that were the Jewish leaders because they're already respected by the people. So you got foxes in the hen house when it comes to doctrine. Not that they know what anything is, uh, any doctrine is yet. They haven't established any. They haven't, they haven't found anything out. By the time Acts chapter 10 comes around, the Jewish leaders, the leaders of the church, most of them Jews, say, well, okay, I guess if God's pouring out the Holy Ghost, how can we say that Jesus isn't available to them? So, all right, I, I, guess that's, I guess that's the way it works. So then the church begins to spread out. We get to Acts chapter 11, or Acts chapter 12, Acts chapter 13, where the church at Antioch now comes on the scene. Doesn't tell us how it started, but by the time Acts chapter 12 comes along, I'm sorry, by the time Acts chapter 13 comes along, the church at Antioch has got Paul. The church at Antioch has got Barnabas. It's got these other guys, these five men that are prophets and teachers. Now ministry gifts are being raised up. And the Holy Ghost speaks to them, not through Jerusalem, not through the mother church that's still steeped in the law of Moses. Now the church at Antioch begins to send people out as missionaries. And so what does Paul do? Paul and Barnabas go to Galatia. They establish churches in those five cities of Galatia. We talked about some of that when we went through the book of Galatians not too long ago. And what happens? The Jews who still have, the Jews in those cities of Galatia who still have contacts and connections with the church in Jerusalem try to tear up everything that Paul is doing. It creates such a problem that by the time Acts chapter 15 comes along, Paul has to go to Jerusalem and have a council with James, who's now the pastor, Jesus' half-brother, who's now the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. He's taken over from Peter. He has to have a meeting, a big council, to change everything about what do the Gentiles have to do to be saved. Why does Jerusalem decide? Hadn't God already covered that? Folks, I want you to understand, Jerusalem thought they decided. Why? Because they're still steeped in the law of Moses. This thing goes on and on and on until we finally get to Acts chapter 21. Turn with me to Acts chapter 21. Let me show you something. Now, Acts chapter 21 is when Paul finally goes back to Jerusalem. Now, there's all kinds of things that have happened in the meantime. Paul has established churches in uh, Corinth and uh, Ephesus. 
You remember the story about how he wanted to go into Asia. That's where Ephesus was. It's uh, what we know of as modern-day Turkey. The seven churches of Revelation, those are all in modern-day Turkey. They would be in the region of, of Asia, primarily. And it, the Holy Ghost wouldn't let him go into Asia until it was time. Acts chapter 16, he wouldn't let him go into Bithynia, wouldn't let him go into to Mysia, wouldn't let him go into Asia. And so he had the vision in the night where he went over into Macedonia, into Philippi, the chief city of Macedonia, and started a church there. Finally, by the time he gets to Acts chapter 19, now it's time for Paul to go to Ephesus. Now it's okay for him to go to, to Asia. And he has the greatest revival there that he ever had in any time of his ministry. He spends three and a half years in Ephesus, and the, whole, the Bible says the whole world is reached with Paul's gospel. In other words, they hear about what Paul is preaching and about Jesus from that one place because he went in the timing of God. Same place in Acts chapter 16, Holy Ghost wouldn't let him go. Now Acts chapter 19, he has the greatest revival, greatest ministry results in his, in his, uh, that we have record of in his ministry. That's when, after he leaves Ephesus, that's when he starts getting in his heart that he's supposed to go to Jerusalem. And everybody tries to talk him out of it. Remember? Everybody starts prophesying and telling him by the Holy Ghost, oh, you're going to have trouble in, in, in Jerusalem. And Paul says, well, I know that. I'm not going to Jerusalem because I think it's going to be easy. I'm going to Jerusalem because that's where I think I'm supposed to go. But everybody senses, and many of it by the, much of it by the Holy Ghost, they sense that Paul is going to have trouble. So they think that means don't go, don't go, don't go. There are preachers today, preachers I have a great deal of respect for. They're saying, Paul missed it by going to Jerusalem. The Holy Ghost warned him time after time after time. Well, once he got to Jerusalem and got in the middle of the trouble, Jesus appeared to him and said, Paul, don't worry. Just like you testified here in, in Jerusalem, you're going to have to testify before me in Rome. Well, wouldn't that have been a perfect time for the Lord to say, Paul, what in the world are you doing here? I warned you 12 times not to come to Jerusalem. But he didn't. Paul knew where the other people didn't know. Paul knew that that's where he was supposed to go. Now, when he gets to Jerusalem, I want you to see what happens in Acts chapter 21. This is at least 20 years after Jesus has been raised from the dead. The church at Jerusalem is at least 20 years old. Maybe more. We don't know for sure. But it's at least 20 years old. Now notice what happens when he gets to Jerusalem. Um, Acts chapter 21 beginning in verse 17. This is Luke writing the book of Acts because he's part of Paul's company. And he says, And when we were come to Jerusalem, that means Paul and his company, the brethren received us gladly. I want you to notice the distinctions that it makes in the church. The brethren received us gladly. And the day following, Paul went in with us unto James and all the elders that were present. And when he had saluted them, he declared particularly, he meaning Paul, declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. And when they, that means James and all the elders that were present, according to verse uh, 18, and when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and they said unto him. They glorified God said, oh, Paul, that's so great. We've been hearing stories about you. We've been hearing things about your ministry. But to hear it firsthand and hear the things God has done is wonderful. Now notice what James, the leader of the church at Jerusalem, tells him about the church in Jerusalem. Twenty years old. Twenty plus years old. Then James says, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. Here's James, the pastor of the church of Jerusalem, describing his church. He said, look at the thousands. Well, we know it's got to be thousands. It was 8,000 plus just by the time we got through Acts chapter 3. They've had 20 years to reach more people, or almost 20 years. 
And so he says there are thousands of Jews that believe, thousands of Jews that are part of this church, thousands of Jews that have gotten saved, but they're all zealous of the law. Why? Because they don't know any better. Folks, I want you to understand, Paul's revelation was not something that everybody else knew. That's why Paul said the world would be judged by his gospel. I'm sure glad the world's not going to be judged by James's gospel. Because James hasn't changed these guys from being zealous of the law. Now, some work couldn't have been done, but some could have. But he didn't know. You can only teach what you know. You can only give out what you've got. So he said, there are thousands. Look, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe. And they're all zealous of the law. And they are all informed of thee. Everybody's heard about you. That you teach all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. Saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after their customs. That must be a problem for them. That would be the perfect place for Paul to say, well, yeah. Aren't you teaching the same thing, James? But James isn't, because he doesn't know. What is it therefore? Verse 22, James says, what is it therefore? In other words, here's how we're going to have to handle this. The multitude must needs come together, for they'll hear that you're come. We're going to have a mob on our hands, Paul. Everybody's going to hear that you're here. To hear about you being here. And everybody's going to come together. So here's what we're going to do. Verse 23. Do therefore this that we say unto thee. In other words, here's my advice to you. I'm the pastor here. Follow my advice. These are my people. This is my church. I know how to handle them. Here's what I want you to do. We have four men which have a vow on them. That's part of the law of Moses. Them take and purify yourself with them. And be at charges with them that they may shave their heads and all may know that, that those things whereof they were informed concerning thee are nothing but that you yourself also walkest orderly and keep the law. James's solution. Folks, James is anointed of God. He's set in place of God. And James' solution is we've got to make them think that you keep the law too. That's the only thing that's going to quiet this thing down. That's the only thing that's going to keep us from having a riot. There's too many people for me to control. I can't just stand up and say, whatever Paul says is good, listen to him. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to purify yourself just like these other four guys that are doing it according to the law of Moses, and that will appease everybody. And Paul does it. Now here's why he does it. Hold your finger here and turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 9. I think it is. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Let's start reading in verse uh, 19. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 19. He says, For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all that I might gain the more. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew that I might gain the Jews. Now, folks, he's writing this after Acts chapter 21. He's not just talking theory. He's explaining something that he really did. I don't, we don't have any reason to know or any way to know whether or not they've heard about this and he's explaining or if he's just u- using his own example as a, as a principle. But he says, to the Jews I became a Jew. That I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law is under the law. 
In other words, I didn't come in trying to disrupt everybody that was keeping the law because my purpose was to gain them. Now, if he's talking about gaining the ones in Jerusalem, he's not talking about getting them saved. They're already saved. He means gaining them with knowledge, getting them set free from the, th- the legalism and the, the bondage that they're still under. Why? Because the Jeru- Jerusalem's house was left desolate by Jesus' death burial and resurrection the old covenant the law of Moses is desolate there's no life there's no benefit so Paul's trying to gain them by showing them being one of them and showing them how to be free so to them that are under the law I became as under the law that I might gain them that are under the law to them that are without law as without law being not without law unto God in other words he's saying I don't sin with people that sin but I will keep the customs of the people that have customs See, some people have got these ideas that, well, I'm just going to go in the bars where I can reach the sinners. They wind up drinking and sinning and doing the wrong things, and they never reach anybody. They just destroy their own Christian testimony. Paul's not saying, I'll sin with the sinners. He's saying, I'll keep the customs with people that have customs so that I can show them the truth. In other words, Paul's saying, I don't care if it's long hair. If people have long hair, I'll wear long hair with them. If people wear short hair, I'll wear short hair with them. If they're keeping the law of Moses, what do I care? The law of Moses is nothing anymore. I'll do that. I'll reach them that way. That way they'll think I'm one of them and I'll be able to tell them things that will help them. Do you see the principle? But it's customs, not sin. I've heard people in the church talk about missionary dating. You young people, missionary dating is not the way to go. You know what I'm talking about? about that. You know what that phrase means, don't you? Date the unsaved and maybe you get them saved? Well, they'll get you unsaved. So he says, To them that are without law, I became as without law, not without law to God, but under the law of Christ, that I might gain them that are without the law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might gain the weak. And here's the, here's the principle. I made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Now back to Acts chapter 21, verse 26. Then Paul took the men, the four men that James was talking about, and the next day, purifying himself with them, entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification until that an offering should be offered for every one of them. That's fancy talk by saying he kept the seven-day vow of purification with these other four guys. But when the seven days were almost ended, they didn't even finish the week. Notice it says, the Jews which were of Asia. Now, folks, Asia is referencing Ephesus. That's where Ephesus was the chief city of Asia. If you remember in Acts chapter 19 what happened, Paul had a great ministry results. He spent three and a half years there, but he also had a riot on his hands because there were the silversmiths that were screaming, crying out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Why? When they found that one of Paul's company was a Jew, they began screaming and crying out, These guys are trying to destroy our prophets, our business. Because uh, the temple of Diana was one of the seven wonders of the world and it was located in Ephesus and it was big, big business for them. That was a riot that they had and finally the, the, the Romans settled everybody down and stopped the thing before it got out of hand. But now the Jews, same ones that have got something struck in their craw about Paul and the rest of them, Jews come from Asia to Jerusalem. They see somebody that's named Trophimus that's part of Paul's company that is from Ephesus. And they suppose that Paul has brought him into the temple. And that's a big no-no. Gentiles can't come into the temple. Now, what does it tell us? It tells us that these things are being written while the temple is still standing. It's not 70 A.D. yet. 
right? Chances are, well, actually, if Josephus is right, Josephus in his historical record tells us that uh, um, Ananias, the, the high priest, is the one that had James, the pastor of the church, killed in 62 A.D. So it's got to be somewhere before that, probably right before that. It's probably 60, 61 A.D., somewhere around there. But anyway, it says, uh, The Jews which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up all the people and laid hands on him, Paul, crying out, Men of Israel, this is the man that teaches all men everywhere against the people and the law and this, and this place, and further brought Greeks into the temple for he, and has polluted this holy place. Now here's why they thought so. Verse 29, For they had seen before with him in the city of Trophimus an Ephesian. Well, Ephesian is in this, the region of Asia that was called Asia back then. Ephesus was. Whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. The whole city's moved together. They get in, in a big riot. It winds up having Paul taken by the Roman centurions. Uh, when Paul uh, tells the Roman centurion that he's a Roman, then they stop beating him and that kind of stuff. He winds up going in Acts chapter 23 before the high priest, Ananias. Ananias is spoken of by Josephus as, a, as a, a guy with a real bad temper. He favored the Sadducees, and he started a persecution against the Christians. Now, there were several different persecutions. There was persecution that started in 64 A.D. that was Nero when he burned the city of Rome. He was behind the burning of the city of Rome and blamed it on the Christians. And that stirred up everybody against the Christians, the Christian world. That's when uh, uh, the things really heated up and offering the Christians in the Colosseum to the... In the uh, the games and, and all that kind of stuff. That's when Paul and, and uh, Peter were finally uh, uh, sacrificed, killed, sometime shortly thereafter in, uh, in Rome. So there's several different waves of persecution. But Paul's on the ends of all of these things. The wrong ends of all of these things. Folks, the point I'm trying to make to you is very simply this. You can't find throughout the book of Acts where the Jews didn't control and limit the power of Christianity. That's why God sent Paul to the Gentiles. He sent him to the Gentiles, but the Jews were always a thorn in his side, literally. The Jews were the, the instrument that the devil used, the messenger of Satan, the thorn in the flesh that tried to tear up the church. It's tearing up the church in Jerusalem. Continually. Continually. Now, who wrote the book? We, you can see very readily why the book of, of Hebrews was written. It was written to try to show the Jews where they're wrong by hanging on to the law of Moses. It's the only and the greatest exposition that we have to show the Jews everything about the Old Testament shadows, how Jesus fulfilled those things, and what made Jesus better than what they were holding on to. Because they sure weren't getting it in their own church. James wasn't, whatever degree James understood, whatever revelation James had, he wasn't able to get it across to him. Because by the time you get to Acts chapter 23 and chapter 24, you see the Jews still controlling, the religious Jews, the devout Jews, saved may they, they may be. But they're still controlling the church in Jerusalem. It doesn't stop people from getting saved, but it does stop them from growing. So who wrote the book of Hebrews? If we know who wrote the book of Hebrews, then it will help us understand why God would have them to write the things that they did. There are four or five different uh, people that are, that are on the, the best guess list. They're the best guesses for who wrote the book of Hebrews. Most Bible scholars are divided between four or five different people. Uh, one of the ones is Luke. The reason that Luke is considered to be a, a prospect for having written the book of Hebrews is because Luke wrote in real flowery langri language. 
his gospel, the book of Acts, it's different language than what Paul might normally write. You remember Paul in writing to the Galatians, he was real blunt about things. You stupid Galatians who put the spell on you that you'd do these things and so forth. There's none of that in the book of Hebrews. And so many people think that that means Paul didn't write it, that maybe it was somebody that like Luke. The problem with Luke, as well as some of the others, as being the, the author of the book of Hebrews, is that we don't have any way to know how Luke, being a Gentile, would understand all the Old Testament types and shadows. Now, he was part of Paul's company, but we don't see anything where Paul went to the Gentile cities and taught all the stuff about the Old Testament. So how would Luke know all these things? So he's a possibility, but not real likely. Uh, another uh, candidate that some people think uh, wrote the book of Hebrews is Clement of Rome. Now, Clement was a first century church father. The problem is we've got other first century church fathers that say that there, were other, there was another author. And so some of his contemporaries, if Clement was the one that wrote it, and again, he's a Gentile. He's got the same issues and problems with Luke as being the author. But there are other first century church fathers that said there were other authors. And so if he was widely recognized or it was understood that he was the author, wouldn't his contemporaries know that? Martin Luther believed that Apollos was the author of the book of Hebrews. But you got the same situation with him. He's a Gentile. He only knew what Aquila and Priscilla had taught him secondhand about Paul's message. How would he know all the Old Testament types and shadows? He was, he was an orator. He was a, a flowery speaker, and he w would very well be the, able to write in the, the, the beautiful language of the book of Hebrews. But how would he know? We don't have any record that he would know that. Finally, another, uh, another possibility, and I believe is the most likely, is Paul. Now, there are several reasons why the book of Hebrews could, and in my, my opinion, was written by the, book of, uh, by the book of Paul. Right, you understand that. Was written by Paul. First of all, the cons against it is that Paul always signed his letters. Paul always said, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, to this, that group, this group, that group, whoever. And there's no, there's no salutation, there's no opening line. But you remember, we looked over in, in um, Galatians chapter 6 and verse, le uh, verse 11, where Paul said, you see what a large letter I've written in my own hand. In the older manuscripts, not all of them, but most of the oldest manuscripts we have, and, and folks, you need to realize, we don't have the original copies of anything. I mean, there are fragments. There are original copies that are fragments that we know of, or that they assume are original pieces. But we don't have the originals of anything. All, the only thing that we've got are copies that were handed down and, and things like that. And for that reason, it's, it's incredibly supernatural to me, the supernatural nature of the Bible, that God preserved it. I, I mean, it's, it's amazing. Because what we've got are copies. The original that we have of the book of Hebrews might be a copy. In other words, you might have somebody like Barnabas or you might have somebody like Luke that would have copied Paul's letter and maybe they rounded off some of the rough edges. Or maybe Paul was really inspired by the Holy Ghost and he dealt with the Jews in a different way than he dealt with the people that he had responsibility for. There's any number of ways that you can look at this. Another reason that Paul might be the writer of the book of Hebrews is that the book of Galatians and the book of Hebrews cover the same subject. And that is... Freedom from legalism through the work of Jesus. Same subject, same story. We know something else about the book of Hebrews, and that is it speaks of Timothy. 
Paul is the only one of any of the writers in the New Testament that speaks of Timothy as being his brother, and he does that on five different occasions. And in Hebrews chapter 13, about verse 23, 24, somewhere like that, he says, Timothy, our brother. Well, he wouldn't be a brother to Peter. He wouldn't be anybody that, uh, that Peter or, or Barnabas or any of the others would consider that because he wasn't part of their company. Another thing that we know about the book of Hebrews is that it was written from Italy. We know Paul was in Italy. Others were as well. We know that the book of Hebrews was written from prison because the author speaks of Timothy having been in prison and, and recently been released and then speaks of them expecting to be released themselves. There is no other gospel writer, there is no other New Testament writer that we have record of that was in prison at any time other than Paul. Somebody might say, yeah, well, what about Peter? We know Peter's not the author because Peter refers to something that Paul wrote. Now, look with me over to, uh, uh, to 1 Peter chapter 1 and then 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm taking a lot more time on this than I expected to, but I'll try to wrap it up real quick. 1 Peter chapter 1, we know who Peter wrote to in his letters. And I'll read this to you. I want you to see it for yourself. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, the word strangers there literally means those that have been sent and scattered by the persecution. He's talking about the Jews. The Jews were the only ones that were ever scattered by the persecution. The Christian Jews in Jerusalem were the ones that were scattered. Now, look with me over to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter says, This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you. So that means whoever he wrote the first letter to, he wrote the second letter to as well. Right? We know who he wrote the first one to, the Jews that were scattered by the persecution. Now he says, I'm writing a second letter to you in which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. Look with me over to verse uh, 15 of 2 Peter chapter 3. He said, and I, I count that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother, brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, has written unto you. Now, if the you in chapter 3, verse 1 means the Jews, then the you that Paul wrote to in chapter 3, verse 15 has to be a letter to the Jews too. If the book of Hebrews is not the letter that Paul wrote to the Jews, then where is it? Do you see the point? It's not conclusive proof, but it's a good indication. Um, well, let's see, what else do I want to talk about with that? Oh, a couple other points. One is, the writer of the book of Hebrews asked for prayer for himself. None of the other writers of the epistles ever asked that, ever said anything about that except Paul. Peter never asked the Jews to pray for him. John never asked the Jews to pray for them. James never said anything about in his letter about pray for us. But Paul did over and over and over again. He said pray for us. Pray for us that utterance will be given. Pray for us that for, for divine uh, protection, guidance, and so forth. Paul mentioned about the people that he was writing to, praying for them several times. He does that to the Jews as well, to the Hebrews as well. I believe that Paul is the, is the author of the book of Hebrews. Now, there are some things that you can't explain. Why did he say this when he said this in another place? I don't have all the answers. 
I don't know, but for the sake of our discussion over the next several weeks, I'm going to assume that Paul is the author. If, uh, as one uh, minister friend of mine says, if I'm wrong about that, when we get to heaven, Jesus will straighten us out. Now, what was the purpose of the book of Hebrews? The book of Hebrews has a very simple theme, and that is the excellency of Jesus. Now, the reason, and that's a a flowery doctrinal way of saying what the, the book is about, literally what the book is, the meaning of the book is better. Paul uses the word better, the Greek word that is translated better, 13 times when he's writing the letter to the Hebrews. Now, the reason that he speaks of that word so much is because he speaks of Jesus being better than the prophets in chapter 1, better than the angels in chapter 1 and chapter 2, better than Moses in chapter 3, better than Joshua in chapter 4, better than the high priest in chapters 4, 5, and 6, better than Abraham in chapters 6 and 7, better than Melchizedek in chapters 6 and 7, better than Aaron and the Levites in chapters 7 and 8, better than the Old Testament sacrifices in chapters 8 through 10, better than the Old Testament heroes of faith in chapters 11 through 12, and better than anyone or anything else in chapters 12 and 13. Now, folks, do you know of anybody else? Is there any other record that we have in the Scripture where somebody would take it systematically... I really, truly, I wish the chapter divisions, they wouldn't have done this because some of them would be too long, but I wish the chapter divisions were were not where they were, but instead were broken up according to what he's saying that Jesus is better than now. Because it is the outline of the book. Jesus is better than. Now what, first of all, who would know better than Paul the error of the Jews? He says of himself that he was, had the same training as the high priest. He was the tribe of Benjamin. He was trained at the feet of Gamaliel, who was the greatest of the Jewish law, uh, the teachers and scholars. He had every bit of the training of the high priest, which means we understand what that was. We know historically what that was. That means he had to memorize the, the law and the prophets. He memorized everything that we know of as the Old Testament. Memorized. Not read, not studied. Memorized. Can you imagine, can you understand that when Jesus appeared to him, when Paul was caught up into the third heaven, as he describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, can you understand that when Paul was caught up into the third heaven and he heard things that were not lawful to say, and the Lord revealed to him, gave him the revelation of the gospel that he then sent him to the world, can you not understand how his knowledge from the Old Testament now just starts being clicked off? Jesus did this. Jesus did this. This scripture meant that. This scripture meant that. Can you not see and understand how... Everything changed for Paul. I mean, we're not just talking about Paul had a Damascus Road experience and then, then Ananias came and laid hands on him in Acts chapter 9 and regained his sight. We're talking about something to where everything about his life changes. The difference between Paul on the road to Damascus and Paul in writing to the Jews in the book of Hebrews, it's hard to believe that's the same guy. Because now he knows. Now he's grown. Now he understands. And he's trying to get the Jews to understand as well. Now, folks, here's why the book of Hebrews is important for us. Because everything that Paul says to the Jews about what Jesus is better than has a bearing on some area that the devil will still use to hold you back. And in the same way that he says to the Jews, here's how you can overcome this training, this experience, this doctrine, 
that you've been schooled in is the same way that you and I can overcome what we've been schooled in, the wrong thinking that's held us back so that we can accept everything that Jesus has done for us. The Bible in the book of Hebrews gives a story of the, the life of faith that no other letter does. It speaks of heaven more than any other letter does. It speaks of looking forward to things that are to come more than anything else, any other letter that's in the New Testament. And here's why. Because everything about the Jews had to do with a natural inheritance. They're used to the blessing of Abraham being finances. They're used to the blessing of Abraham being prosperity and everything they put their hand to. They're used to the blessing of Abraham being followed through and carried out through the law of Moses and the sacrifices and the feasts and all those other things. Everything about Judaism points to earthly things. And Paul turns it completely around. He says these were types. Not just because God wants you to have earthly things, but the earthly things represented something even better that Jesus fulfilled, and now it's about heaven. It's about things that are to come. It's not about what you have to give up with the law of Moses. It's about what you, have to, what you get now. Paul uses several words. He uses the word heavenly. He talks about the heavenly calling. He talks about the heavenly gift. He talks about the heavenly city. He talks about things that are yet to come. He talks about great things, how great salvation we have. He talks about what a great high priest we have, what a great covenant we have. He uses specific words inspired by the Holy Ghost to show that what you are holding on to doesn't compare to what you can experience. If you just come to accept that what you have to do is turn loose. book of Hebrews is going to be fun. It'll take us forever to get through, but it will be fun. Amen? Amen. Let's all stand. Forgive me for going over time. But I had to get this introduction out of the way. Hallelujah. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that your word is true. Thank you that you've given us everything that we need to walk in victory. Thank you, Father, that you've blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Show us, Father, in this study that we do on Wednesday nights for the next several months. Show us, Father, how to turn loose of the doctrines of men. How to turn loose to the traditions that have held us back. How to turn loose of things just like the, the Jews were supposed to release the old ways of Judaism. Show us, Father, how to release the old doctrines and traditions that have held us back. So that we can walk in the fullness of everything that you provided for us. In Jesus' precious name we ask you, Father. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.